Joshua. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. And so we're working through the book of Joshua. We're on this journey in chapter 1. We heard the Lord speak to Joshua, be strong and courageous. We moved into chapter 2 and we saw the faith of Rahab. We saw a a Canaanite woman saved from destruction as she trusted in the Lord. We beheld in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 that the mighty work of God as he brought his people through the Jordan. We've seen the Lord work just last chapter in chapter 6 as he threw down the wall of Jericho. And so we've seen some glorious things in the book of Joshua. And here, in this journey, we, we go into a valley, the valley of trouble. And this is where we pick up the story. So let's give our attention to God's word. We're going to read the entirety of Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and took them at the descent." And struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. 
and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken, and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them out to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the day of, therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Trouble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. This is a humbling text to read and to consider. And we need your help so that we might make use of this text and that we might be bettered by it. Lord Jesus, we know that you have eyes like a flame of fire and you see all things, you know all things, you know us now. And Jesus, we pray, would you see us and know us? Would you know our sin? Would you expose it as we look into your word? And we also know, Jesus, that from your mouth comes a two-edged sword. And we pray this morning as we look in this text that you would cut out our sin, that you would destroy it, and then you would heal us and you would make us new by your gospel of grace. We need your ministry, Lord Jesus. So come and deal with our souls. We wait for you and we pray all of this, hoping in you. Amen. Love for Jesus, holiness in life, fruitful, fruitfulness in ministry grows in proportion with one's knowledge and hatred of sin. 
One's love for Jesus, one's holiness in life, one's fruitfulness in ministry grows in proportion with one's knowledge and hatred of sin. The principle goes like this. The more you detest sin, the more you will love Christ. The uglier sin is to your eyes, the more beautiful Christ will appear to your eyes. The darker, the blacker sin appears to you, the more luminous Christ will be as he appears to you clothed in the garments of salvation. The worse sin tastes to your mouth, the less you will consume of it. That the more you understand sin's schemes and temptations and designs, the more carefully you will keep yourself from sin. The more you dwell upon sin's many consequences, the more you will shudder at the sight and appearance of sin. If there is a secret to living the Christian life, I think it has something to do with this, knowing sin and hating sin. Previous generations of Christians knew this principle quite well, and they lived in this principle. For example, if you survey a catalog of books written by Puritans, you will find a a focus on sin for what it truly is. Some of the titles that these pastors wrote in the age of the Puritans goes like this. The sinfulness of sin. The mischief of sin. Sin, the plague of plagues. The evil of evils, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, or sin, the greatest evil. And these men wrote books like these with these sorts of titles, not because they were really grumpy and gloomy and morose men. I think if you had the chance to know these men and if you had a chance to taste their ministries, you would find these men quite happy in the Lord Jesus. But they wrote books like these. And they gave titles to books like these because they knew something. They knew that if men and women were to be bettered with the gospel of Jesus, they knew that if men and women would grow up into Jesus and run the the race of the Christian life well, they would have to grapple and grapple deeply with sin. And so they worked, and they worked hard to deepen their people's knowledge and understanding of sin. Now, as we think about this principle, this is not some human-derived principle. This isn't merely Christian best practices. This principle comes from, from God himself. Whenever you see God advancing the borders of his kingdom, whenever you see God taking men and women and bringing them into his kingdom, when you see him adding them to his church, you will also notice this at the same time. God is opening up eyes to see sin, for what sin truly and really is. And this is true both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Whether you consider the days of renewal in Samuel's ministry, you can remember those days in the beginning of, of 1 Samuel. Whether you remember the days of Reformation under King Josiah, or if you go into the New Testament and you think about the book of Acts and you see the, the gospel moving forward into all these different people groups and men and women naming Jesus. You see this, sin is revealed for what it is, and people see it, they see it. And this is what we find happening as God is at work in the book of Joshua. God is advancing, he is advancing his cause, and to advance his cause, 
he opens up sin to us and to his people in the book of Joshua. So as we look at Joshua chapter 7, we can't miss the theme of the chapter. The theme of the chapter is sin. We've been charting this story, and the story has been building us up with anticipation and excitement. Israel's going to pass over the Jordan, and they're going to take the land. In chapter 6, the city falls down, Israel takes it, and we're expecting a march on to bigger and greater victories in the land. But in chapter 7, this victorious march is derailed by Sin And the goal of Joshua chapter 7 is to set sin before us that we might have a long and careful look at sin. And Joshua chapter 7 does this, giving us this long and careful look at sin so that we might love Jesus more, that we might live holy lives, and that our lives would bear fruit as we do ministry for our King. Now, as we look at Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter 7 sets sin before us in a a peculiar way. If you like a good surprise, if you're into mystery novels or movies, chapter 7 is going to disappoint you. Just look at verse 1. Read it with me. But the people broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. From a storytelling perspective, this is an odd way to go about telling the story. Just think about it. If you were a writer, what would you do? Well, usually, if you're a writer, you would save that information that we get in verse 1 until the climax of the story. You would normally let your readers sit in darkness, and then you would string them along with clues, clue after clue after clue, until you get to the end, and then with a flourish, you'd make this dramatic revelation of what the problem is. Who done it? As we look at verse 1, this isn't what the story does. Before the failed battle of Ai, before the bewilderment and confusion of Joshua, before the painfully slow selection of Achan, we as readers already know everything. We know what the problem is. It's sin. We know who who committed the sin, Achan. We know what what he did. Nothing is left in the dark for us as readers. And this should cause us to ask a question, well, why... Why would you do that as a writer? Well, I think the answer is this. You would only do that if you wanted your your reader to think about sin the whole time you tell the story. Did you see what verse 1 does for us? Verse 1 is like a set of guardrails. Verse 1 won't let us wander about going over here and going over there. Verse 1 keeps us focused. Verse 1 is preaching to us as we enter into the story. Verse 1 says, keep your eyes focused on sin. Don't look away from sin. Keep focused on it, for this is what the whole story is about. It is about sin. Don't miss the point. And so that's our job this morning. What we're going to do is we're just going to keep looking at sin, and we're not going to look away from it. And we're going to do this by considering sin and this story by four different headings. So the first heading is this, the nature of sin. Second, the fruit of sin. Third, the foolishness of sin. And then finally, fourth, the destruction of sin. So the nature of sin, the fruit of sin, the foolishness of sin, the destruction 
of sin. And so we'll start with the first heading, the nature of sin. And we can ask as we start this story, well, what is sin? What are we talking about? We've said this word many times already this morning, but what do we mean by sin? And this question is asked in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and from the catechism we get this answer. It's a helpful answer. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God. So what is sin? How can we translate that sentence into understandable English for us? Well, we can say this, it is not doing or not being what the law of God commands. We sin when we lack conformity to God's law. And so the law of God says, do this or be this. And when we fail to do what the law says and when we fail to be what the law says, we have sinned. Also, we sin when we walk all over the law of God, simply doing what we want to do. If the law says, go right, sin says, I'm going left. I don't care what you say. And so sin, therefore, transgresses the law of God. And as we look into Joshua chapter 7, we get a simple phrase that talks about sin. It is this, Israel broke faith. Israel broke faith. And the idea is this, Israel has been disloyal to the Lord. They have breached the terms of the covenant. They have been unfaithful like a wife stepping out of the marriage covenant on her husband or or switching that around like a husband stepping out on his wife. They have defrauded God. They have not given to the Lord what the Lord deserves and what he is owed. And so we ask, well, how did this happen? How did this sin happen? Well, verse one simply says, Achan took some of the devoted things. And we ask as readers, well, how is this sin? Well, we can just go back to last week. Do you remember the scene? On the seventh day, Israel circled Jericho seven times, and Jericho come, or, or Joshua comes to the people, and he gives them the instruction. He says, shout, and before they shout, Joshua's careful to remind them, of this matter of obedience. Chapter six, verse 18, Joshua preaches. He says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So what has Achan done? He he has transgressed the clear command of God. And the story wants us to linger here over this sin. And so as we keep reading, we come to verse 11, and in verse 11, we get an anatomy of Achan's sin from the Lord. The Lord is speaking, and he's helping us understand what what Achan did. And so the text says this, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So we can just take that clause by clause. So the Lord says this, Israel has sinned. That means Israel has missed the mark, and because they've missed the mark, they have now angered the Lord. We get more. The Lord says, they transgressed my covenant. And so the Lord has made this pact with Israel. The Lord is their God, their Savior, and now Israel's live in faith and obedience towards the Lord. And what has Israel done? They've broke the pact. They're living unfaithfully. And the Lord keeps speaking. We get specifics about how all this has done. The Lord says, they have stolen. That means they broke the eighth commandment. And then the Lord says, they have lied. 
They broke the ninth commandment. And here in verse 11, we see sin for what it is. The Lord's words are so helpful. There's no hedging here. There's no rounding of any corner. There's no hemming or, or hawing with clarity, with specificity, with, with perfect accuracy. The Lord names it. And he sets the whole matter of what Israel has done before us with, with clarity. And here we ask, well, why does the Lord do this? Why does the story, verse 1, verse 11, linger over this sin? And I think the answer is this, that we, as God's people, might learn to do the same thing. Let me tell you this, brother, sister, if you really want to deal with sin in your life, you will need to learn to do the same thing as verse 1, verse 11. You will need to learn to name sin with specificity, with accuracy, being clear and honest. And you will need to learn to do this without any hedging, without any rounding of corners, without any hemming or hawing. The Lord is teaching us how to deal with sin. He says, this is what you have done exactly And if we want to learn to deal with sin, we need to learn to speak like the Lord about ourselves. And so that's the first heading, the nature of sin. And now we can move to the second heading, the fruit of sin. And so one of the most potent lies that sin whispers to us is this. You can do this. You can have this. You can indulge in this without anyone knowing this thing that you want to do, this, this area of life you want to indulge in, this thing that you want to have for yourself, this won't affect anyone in your life. Sin comes to us and tempts us. This won't affect your work. This won't affect your family. This won't affect your, your church. This won't affect your health. This won't affect your, your mind and the way you think. Sin says to us, oh, this is a very private thing. This is between me and you, and it will only stay between me and you. And what does Joshua chapter 7 do? Well, Joshua 7 comes and explodes the lie of sin. Sin cannot be contained. It cannot be kept private. It's like a, a contagion functioning like a virus. It infects and pollutes others. It is like a glitter bomb. Somehow, someway, it gets on absolutely everything and everyone, no matter how careful you try to, to be with it. It just spreads. Go back with me to verse one. We need to listen to this text again. Just just listen. But the people of Israel broke faith. Okay, we've heard that. Now, Now go back to the other verse we've looked at already is verse 11. Listen to this again. The text says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. If we're reading really carefully here, these two verses should cause us to scratch our heads. Doesn't that sound odd to you, what the Lord is saying in verse 1 and verse 11? The text is saying that Israel broke faith, that Israel lied, that Israel stole, that Israel broke the covenant. And what do we know? We know Achan did it. We ask, well, how can the Lord say this about Israel? when it was Achan who stole, when it was Achan who lied, when it was Achan who broke the covenant. Well, the text can say this because Achan's sin, at the end of the day, wasn't private. His sin wasn't private. The the lie of sin was a lie. 
He was a man bound in covenant to the Lord, but not just to the Lord. He was bound in covenant to all of God's people. And his sin polluted and contaminated the whole of the people of God. His private sin brought about this corporate result. Verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. What a sobering verse. Achan sinned, and the Lord was mad with all of Israel. Now, if we keep looking at chapter 7, we will notice that Achan's sin produces four pieces of rotten fruit. His sin affects Israel in four different ways, and I want to list them for you. First piece of rotten fruit is this, the defeat of Israel. And so we learn in the text that Ai was this small city, so small that the spies that, that Joshua sent out told him, to not trouble the people of Israel and have them all go up there and toil there. Just send a small contingent of soldiers because they can easily wipe them out. And after what we saw with Jericho, we, we think as readers, this should be easy, right? But hear this, because of Achan's sin, Israel is trounced by the enemy. Verses 4 and 5. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. So hear this. Achan sinned. As a result, Israel is defeated. Achan sinned in his own private life. And because of that sin, 36 men of Israel died. Second piece of rotten fruit. The dismay of Israel. And so Israel is routed by the small city of Ai, and they flee. And because of this, what happens? Israel is shaken and thrown into turmoil. We get verse 5. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. We've heard those words already. Those words have been used to describe the people of the land of Canaan. They have heard of, of Yahweh and all the great things that Yahweh has done for Israel. And they're melting. But now it is all turned around. Israel is melting. And it gets worse. The text shows us Joshua. And we know Joshua. He is this valiant man of the Lord. Strong and courageous. And what happens to him? He is overcome with doubt and confusion. He speaks in our text with this, with this deep trouble of soul. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? Rotten fruit, Achan sins. Israel's in turmoil. Achan sins, and this hits like a load of bricks. Joshua, this great man of God, is thrown into despair. Piece number three of rotten fruit, the encouragement of God's enemies. And so Israel's routed, they flee, and because of that, all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, are, they are encouraged and they are strengthened in heart. They can feel the momentum changing. The wonder-working God is not working for them anymore. There is a chance for us in our rebellion. And Joshua can feel the pressure. He says, verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Look at the bad fruit. Achan sinned, and God's enemies are encouraged, and they are strengthened. 
piece number four of rotten fruit, the worst piece, the loss of God's presence. So Israel goes up to Ai, the small contingents of soldiers, they lose, they run. And as we're seeing this, this means something theological. Yahweh is not for them anymore. We can say it like this. God is not fighting for Israel. God is not with Israel. God is instead fighting against Israel. God has turned his face against them and now he is angry with them. This is so disturbing. Achan sins and Israel is left alone unto themselves. Now all of this rotten fruit is worth serious study. The Lord doesn't hide any of it from our eyes. The Lord is opening our eyes to see the consequences of sin within the life of Israel. We see all of these downstream effects of sin. And he does this, showing us defeat, dismay, loss, the encouragement of God's enemies. He does this so he he might warn us. And that in this warning, we might learn to take sin ever so seriously, that we might not bring this trouble upon the people of God, upon our families, upon our church, upon our city. The Lord is warning us, and in warning us, he is rousing us. He is trying to wake us up. That's the second heading. We go to the third heading the foolishness of sin. So as we're taking in this story, we're, we're starting to piece the story together. And the question that I was asking myself as I was reading and studying this text this week was this, well, why would Achan do this? But why would he do this? And we get an answer in verse 21. Achan is before Joshua in the congregation of Israel and he has to answer for himself. And we get the answer. Why did Achan do it? Well, he did it for a cloak. The King James Version puts it like this, a goodly Babylonish garment. He does it for 200 pieces of silver and a tongue or a a bar of gold. But again, we ask as we hear this, why would Achan do this? Why would he trade the presence of Yahweh his God? Why would he trade the lives of 36 men? Why would he trade the well-being of the people of God, their security and peace and comfort? Why would he instigate the enemies of God for a cloak, some silver, and a bar of gold? Why would he do that? That doesn't make sense. Well, just listen to Achan as he explains himself, verse 21. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. What is Achan telling us? This is really interesting. Achan straight up copies and pastes Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. He is going to to the fall story to Eve's words, and he is borrowing them, and he is speaking them here. Like Eve, he saw. Like Eve, he desired or coveted. Like Eve, he took. And like Eve, he forfeited his God. And we ask, well, why? Why? And brothers and sisters, this is where it gets disturbing. Why did he do this? Because he wanted the cloak. 
because he wanted the silver, because he wanted the gold, and he wanted these things more than anything else. And why would he want that? The only answer we can give here is this, because he wanted it. He wanted it. And what does this tell us about Achan? It tells us that his heart was full of folly. Full of folly. Brothers and sisters, no logical rationalization can be given for sin. Sin does not make sense. It is the very essence of foolishness. It didn't make sense for Eve in Genesis chapter 3 to trade all of the pleasures of God for a bite of that fruit. It didn't make sense for Achan to, to trade the pleasures of God for a cloak and some silver and some gold. And brother, sister, hear this. It does not make sense for you either to trade all of the pleasures of God for whatever sin you've committed. And when we sin, we see from this story something profoundly disturbing about our hearts. When we sin, we see this about ourselves. We are foolish, and our hearts are crammed with folly. And so, brothers and sisters, it is a foolish thing. Better said, it is insanity to prefer anything above God and his pleasures. But that's what we do when we sin, and we do it again and again and again. And when we sin, we're showing forth this. Our hearts are full of folly. So that's the third heading, the foolishness of sin. This brings us to the fourth heading, the destruction of sin. And so we have to bring this story to a conclusion. And so because of Achan's sin, the anger of the Lord burns against all of Israel. And so something has to be done about Israel's sin. And so we find Joshua in verses 6 through 9. He's bewildered. He's disturbed. His clothes are torn. His heart is full of grief. His head is full of confusion. And it is here in the midst of all of this confusion that the Lord enters into the story and he starts to speak. And what does the Lord do? He comes to Joshua and he rouses him out of his confused stupor. And he calls him to action. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? In other words, the Lord is saying to Joshua, this is not the time for self-pity. This is not the time for mourning. This is not the time for inaction. It is time to act right now. There is sin in the camp. You need to deal with this right now. These are precious words. The Lord comes and gives Joshua a wake-up call. And perhaps this, this morning, this verse is for you. Maybe this is the word of the Lord for you today. The Lord coming and rousing you. Take action with your sin right now. There is sin in the camp. Deal with it. Stop waiting around. And so the Lord is dealing with Joshua, and he lays this ultimatum before Joshua. You should love how the Lord works here. Verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They, they turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. Listen to this. I will be with you no more, here's the ultimatum, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. The Lord is presenting this, this choice before Joshua, and the choice is stark. Destroy the devoted things or be destroyed. Purge the devoted things, or yourself be purged. Put to death this offender, or die. That's the choice before Joshua. And Joshua chapter 7 is a heavy text. 
We've been feeling it this morning. And here it gets heavier. The only solution for sin is death of the sinner. And this is the preoccupation of the rest of the chapter 7. As we follow the story, the noose tightens and tightens and tightens around Achan's neck. The tribes of Israel are presented before the Lord and and Judah is taken. Then the the tribe of Judah, the clans of Judah are presented to the Lord and the the Zerites are taken. The Zerites are presented before the Lord and, and Zabdi is taken. The household of Zabdi is presented before the Lord. And finally, we've been waiting for this, Achan is taken. And we see this, the Lord will have his man. Though Joshua and all the people of Israel were ignorant about what had happened with Achan, the Lord knew and the Lord saw and the Lord found this man out. And what a lesson to learn here as we linger over this story. Imagine the sobering effect of this scene as Israel watched the Lord move the tribe of Judah and then the the clans of Judah. He just narrowed in on this man. Imagine the sobering effect as you sat there, you'd be thinking, Yahweh knows everything. I cannot hide from this God. I must serve him with the, the totality, the completeness of my heart. And this should sober us well because we serve the same God. Brother, sister, hear this. This God cannot be evaded. He cannot be duped. He cannot be tricked. He knows all things. And so the story concludes with destruction. The silver, the gold, the cloak that that Achan took is brought before the Lord. Achan, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, they're all brought out into the valley of trouble. And this is where we find these words. Verses 25 and 26. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned away from his burning anger. Achan's sin, and he died for his sin. And then we hear at the end of the story that the anger of the Lord is turned away. So there we have Joshua chapter 7. And what can we say about this chapter? Well, I think we can say this. This chapter is a deeply humbling and thoroughly troubling chapter. What do we see in Joshua chapter 7? We see that the Lord relentlessly pursues sin until it is removed from his camp, his people. And the text does the same thing. The text is relentlessly pursuing sin and does not stop pursuing sin until we, as the reader, we see what sin really, truly is. And here's the thing about this text. This text is not a dead text. It's a living and active word of God. This text is pursuing us. Let me ask you this morning. Couldn't Joshua chapter 7 be rightly written about any one of us? Let me ask you, haven't you transgressed the law of God? Haven't you failed to measure up to the law and get done what the law calls you to get done in your life? Have you not contaminated the many people in your life with the rotten fruit of your own sin? That's a terrible question to think about. How many people have you made cry because of your sin? How many people have you made mourn because of your sin? How much trouble have you caused because of your sin? 
don't you deserve the same thing that Achan got in the valley of trouble? Don't you deserve a bunch of stones and fire? Brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider these questions and just to sit with them because this chapter is given to us so that we might be humbled. We would do well to go out into the valley of trouble. We would do well to take a long look at that pile of stones and to look at those, those burnt things. God would do great good for your soul if you did that. I think you would gain humility, and we need lots of humility. But here at the end of chapter 7, we're also asking, at least in my soul, I'm asking, well, what about hope? What about salvation? Is there any grace for us in chapter 7? We're being humbled, that's good. But is there any hope for us aching like sinners? And I think there is. Go back with me to chapter 7. In chapter 7, there's some details that might seem unnecessary to you. They might seem strange to you. But when we look at some of these strange and what might seem unnecessary details, I think we find the hope of salvation. So go back with me to verse 1. We've looked at this verse multiple times. But in verse 1, we get this genealogical description of Achan. The text says, Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. Then the same information is given to us again and again in the chapter. At the end of this story, the noose tightens around Achan's neck. And what is repeated in our ears? What's the genealogy of Achan? of the tribe of Judah, of the clan of the Zerites, of the family of Zabdi, and then finally Achan, the son of Carmi. What's happening in Joshua chapter 7? All focus is on the son of Judah. All focus, our eyes are trained on a son of Judah. This son of Judah sinned, and his sin brought the anger of the Lord upon Israel. And when he died for his sin, the anger of the Lord turned away from the people of God. And you're probably already doing the, the, the math in your head about how this works. Does this not cause us to think about another son of Judah? When we open up our Bibles, his genealogical information is before us. Let me tell you it again. This other son is the son of Joseph. And if you go back in the story, he is also the son of Salmon and Rahab. And going even farther back, he is the son of Perez. He is not like Achan. Achan was the son of Zerai. There's these two twins. But this son is the son of Perez. And finally, the son of Judah. And let me tell you about this other son of Judah. This son of Judah never sinned. He never troubled Israel. He never coveted. He never lied. He never stole. He perfectly kept the pact of God living in faith before his God. But hear this. This son of Judah was taken outside of the camp. Like Achan, he was brought down into his valley and upon his shoulders were placed not his own troubles, but all the troubles of the people of God. And Joshua's condemning words, which pierced Achan's soul, came to this son of Judah and pierced his soul. Jo jo Joseph, Joshua's words come to him and say, the Lord brings trouble upon you today. And hear this, he wasn't burnt with fire or pelted with stones he experienced a far worse fate. He was staked to a cross. And there in his death, he met the righteous fury of Yahweh, his God. And there he died. 
Not for his own sin, but for the sin of the people of God. And here is the result of this other son of Judah. His death turned away the burning anger of the Lord. And let me tell you, this son of Judah, his name is Jesus, and he is our Lord and our Savior. And don't you love him? Brothers and sisters, someone must die for sin. Someone has to die for sin. The logic of Joshua chapter 7, the ultimatum given to Joshua still applies. And this is our gospel hope. God has provided another son to Judah, and this son has died for sin. He's died for sin. And brothers and sisters, we would do well not to just go to the valley of trouble and look upon the stones of Achan. We would do well to go to Golgotha. We would do well to go there and to look and to look and to look. For when you go to Golgotha, you will not only see sin for what it is. You will see sin there at Golgotha. You'll see its vile nature. You'll see its ugliness. But in the midst of all of that, God's glory will shine through and you will see his love and his mercy for sinners. You will see his kindness even more. You will see the excellency and the preciousness of Jesus Christ, his son, as he gives himself for people like you and me. And if you are wise, you will stay there looking and believing at this other son of Judah our Savior who gave himself for sinners. And you will stay there looking and believing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your word. We need this text. We need to be humbled. We are far too proud in our lives. And so humble our hearts. Teach us the valley, teach us the lesson of the valley of trouble. Even more, would you lead us to Golgotha? We need to see your son, dead for sin. We need to see your love in him and your mercy in him and your grace in him. Father, we pray. We have seen sin this morning for what it is. Would you use it to cause us to love Jesus more? That's what we need, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.